I'm Beth Bennett. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, November 10th, 2020. Coming up, an interview with author Judith Schwartz, whose recent book, The Reindeer Chronicles, explores regenerative solutions in a range of damaged landscapes. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Here's a sneak preview of some of the issues I discussed at length in my interview with Judith Schwartz. An international team of hundreds of scientists working over the past 30 years has developed an archive of animal movement patterns across the Arctic and subarctic regions of North America. This is an enormous region that is experiencing some of the most dramatic effects of global warming, including animal declines. And this is an enormous database allowing scientists for the first time to analyze movement patterns of animal species inhabiting the Arctic. Three of the case studies revealed surprising associations between climate change and the behavior of golden eagles, bears, caribou, moose, and wolves. In one study, the movements of more than 900 female caribou were analyzed. In caribou, the animals who migrate long distances are now giving birth earlier in the spring, roughly tracking the rate of warming. Among the non-migratory mountain and lowland woodland caribou, only the northern subpopulations are showing similar changes. This makes sense as it gives the calves more opportunity to grow during the brief summer season. A second study compared movements of more than 100 golden eagles from 1993 to 2017. This species migrates into the Arctic for the summers. Immature birds arrived earlier following mild winters, while the adult birds did not. The timing shift for young birds varied in response to a large-scale climate cycle called the Pacific Decadal Oscillation, which is being affected by climate change. Seems that the young birds are able to modify their behavior, whereas the older adults are set in their ways. A third study looked at how fast animals like bears, caribou, moose, and wolves were moving around their environment in the time period between 1998 and 2019. Not surprisingly, these species responded differently to seasonal temperatures and winter snow conditions. The scientists speculate that those differences could influence species interactions, food competition, and predator-prey dynamics. I'm sure we'll hear more analyses of animal behaviors coming out of this large collaborative study. This paper was published last week in the journal Science. Back in the 1990s, astronomers discovered the first exoplanets, which are planets orbiting other stars beyond our solar system. Of particular interest has been the search for rocky, possibly Earth-like planets around Sun-like stars, because, well, those are places very familiar to us and could be potentially habitable. In fact, last year's Nobel Prize in Physics was awarded in part for the discovery of an exoplanet orbiting a solar-type star. Human curiosity about life beyond universe has lasted for millennia, driving not only science, but also art and literature. According to a recent study accepted for publication in the Astronomical Journal, about half of the stars 
similar in temperature to our sun, could have a rocky planet capable of supporting liquid water on its surface. The research finds that our Milky Way galaxy is home to perhaps more than 300 million of these potentially habitable worlds based on data from NASA's retired planet hunting mission, the Kepler Space Telescope. Nine years of the telescope's observations revealed that there are billions of planets in our galaxy, more planets than stars. Some of these exoplanets could be our interstellar neighbors. Even the lowest estimate of the study indicates that at least four could be within 30 light-years of our sun, and the closest no more than 20 light-years from us. To calculate the frequency, also known as the occurrence rate of such planets, the team looked at exoplanets between one-half to one-and-a-half times the size of the Earth, narrowing in on planets that are most likely rocky. They also focused on stars similar to our sun in age and temperature. Previous estimates of the occurrence rate of such planets ignored the relationship between the star's temperature and the kinds of light given off by the star and absorbed by the planet. The new analysis accounts for these relationships and provides a more complete understanding of whether or not a given planet might be capable of supporting liquid water and potentially life. That approach is made possible by combining Kepler's final data set of planetary signals with data about each star's energy output from an extensive trove of data from the European Space Agency's Gaia mission. Gaia provided information that could be used to calculate the amount of energy that falls on a planet from its host star. A planet's atmosphere also figures into how much light is needed to allow liquid water on a planet's surface. Using a conservative estimate of the atmosphere's effect, the researchers estimated an occurrence rate of about 50%. That is, about half of sun-like stars have rocky planets capable of hosting liquid water on their surfaces. This research helps us to understand the potential for these planets to have the elements to support life. This is an essential part of astrobiology the study of life's origins and future in our universe. Author Judith Schwartz takes the reader on a tour of some of the most wounded places on Earth and stories of how a passionate group of eco-restorers is leading the way to their revitalization. This optimistic book describes solutions to seemingly intractable problems that can restore local water, carbon, nutrient, and energy cycles. Welcome to the show, Judith. I'm speaking with Judith Schwartz, the author of The Reindeer Chronicles and other inspiring stories of working with nature to heal the earth. And Judith just finished this book about regeneration of ecosystems. And I have to say that when I first got the book, I was thinking I might be depressed by this book, but as I read it, I found just the opposite. I was so uplifted. Judith, I think you did a great job of bringing amazing stories of regeneration 
and working with natural systems to help heal some of the damaged ecosystems of which of course there are many on our planet right well the fact that there are so many damaged ecosystems means that there are so many opportunities that we can that that we can take that we can get at right now so and in all different types of environments we know the ways to bring those places back to health yeah so let's talk about some of those ways and also some of the amazing people that you met while you were doing this book so do you yeah. want to start with talking about the less plateau i i had to search for the video after i read about that and look at some of the footage of that area. And that is just a huge eroded area. And so talk a little bit about what, what the Chinese have been doing to restore that area. Yeah, so, so this is how I begin the book. And I did that because I wanted just to put out there this huge epic example, like this large, large area of land about the size of the country of Belgium, where this is where the uh, agriculture in China began. It was for many thousands of years, China's breadbasket. And after all those millennia of use and misuse, it had really kind of, kind of, it was kind of farmed out. And um, so what was happening was that there, there, okay, actually this is a pattern that often happens in, um, civilizations is that you get farming at the around the river mouths of rivers where you're getting a lot of nutrients in the soil and then as then there, you start irrigation and then with irrigation comes salinity and over mineralization so people start going up the hillsides and then you get erosion so what was happening was that the yellow river was silting up and causing untold damage and the hillsides had totally eroded. And there were images from the 1980s and early 90s of people bringing their goats to the, on, the, on the hills and there would be maybe one blade of grass and the goat would be nibbling that. And so this was not sustainable. So the Chinese government decided that rather than help these impoverished people in perpetuity and rather than continually dredging the Yellow River in perpetuity, that they would heal the watershed. They would rehabilitate this landscape. And it was, like I said, it was a really epic venture. And they had hydrologists and geologists and economists and biologists and all different kinds of experts in the World Bank and different international entities. And they worked with local people. They hired local people to do the work of planting, of, of um, carving out the trellises, doing, forming earthworks and water harvesting. And all of these on their own, each of these efforts were very simple, but together they transformed the landscape. And more than two million people were lifted out of poverty. And one thing I want to mention about this particular effort is that when all was said and done with all this success and people's lives have been transformed greatly, it, the cost of it was $17 per acre per year. 
So that in itself can give us hope that it doesn't cost a lot to, to do earth repair. It really, really doesn't. It's a matter of what we decide to do. And the benefits just kind of cascade upon each other. Because when you're, when you're slowing down the water, you're keeping the water in the ground. And if you're planting, you're building carbon. And then you're building biodiversity, literally from the ground up. And then as you build biodiversity, your people are able to make use of those plants and, and the, the yields of those trees. And then they can start to bring their animals managing them, one would hope, in a more holistic, restorative way. But the people's lives improve. And then as the ecosystem starts functioning better, you're getting greater climate regulation. When you have more trees, trees are actually, they are actually kind of moving moisture and they are blocking the wind and they are, um, you know, kind of filtering water when you get heavy rain. So it keeps, it keeps building on, on, the improvements keep building on each other. Yeah, we've seen that effect, well, not personally, but historically we've seen that effect of trees in so many places around the planet. Like this is a great segue into one of your later chapters on um, revegetation and water storage in Saudi Arabia because so much of North Africa was forested thousands of years ago before all those forests were cut down. And once the trees are gone, then that climate regulation ceases and desertification almost always follows. Right, and one thing that's interesting is that we tend, only, we tend to look at a landscape and we think that it's always been that way. We often lose historical memory so that even in a place where in our grandparents' generation it was lush and it was working and the water was clean, we may not have seen that. So we don't, that really limits our imagination or we have to work harder to imagine what's possible. Well, certainly we think about Saudi Arabia as desert, certainly, but in truth, the person who, whose story I tell, someone named Neil Spackman, who um, got involved in a poverty reduction project in Western Saudi Arabia, working with local Bedouin communities, and he also brought in a, an ecological component to this project. So the land was not functioning at all. The, the, the rains were very sparse, but when it did rain, it flooded. By the way, what Neil, how Neil describes or defines a desert is that a desert is a place that when it rains, it floods. And I think that's a really powerful definition because it focuses on function, which I think is so important because once when it rains, it doesn't flood because the land is holding that moisture because there's more carbon, because there are plants to hold the soil in place, then it ceases to become a desert. So what, what he found is that though the land was in terrible shape, the local people were able to share with him that anyone who was maybe in their mid-50s or older, that when they were children, there was a place that their families would go to where there were nearby, where there were always trees and there was continual water. And that's not what the situation was in 2010 
when Neil started this project. So the project was is really quite amazing because the rains were so few and far between. So what they did was they prepared for the rain. They spent a lot of time building earth dams and different water catchment techniques. And then when it rained, they would store the rain. And when there was moisture, they would plant. So they went through several cycles of these, including times when it might be two years between, a rain, between rainfalls, meaningful rainfalls. And so they were planting, they ended up planting thousands of trees. Then in 2016, in the summer, the project ran out of funding and they had to stop the irrigation. Doing the irrigation, incidentally, they never overdrew the water. They only used what was within their water budget. In other words, what they had already captured and stored. So they stopped irrigation and they said, well, we gave this a good try, let's see what happens. And the amazing thing is that three years later, when Neil went back to visit, and I've seen videos of this, 80% of the trees survived because they had so effectively held the moisture in the landscape well enough that these trees could form mycelial networks and get established to the point where they could draw in moisture from a greater distance than they would have otherwise. And that seems like such a recurring lesson that you present through all of the stories that you have in your book that, well, first it takes some patience to work with these natural systems, but bringing in the water and letting the plants establish themselves in a way where they can maintain themselves, they'll do that. That's how nature works. You know, plants are trying to survive and they're very clever. They'll adapt to different situations if we just give them a little help. Right, and, and nature wants to heal. Exactly, so. exactly. Yeah, so for our listeners that are just tuning in, I'm Beth Bennett and you're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. And I'm speaking with Judith Schwartz, author of the Reindeer Chronicles. So maybe we should talk about reindeer now. And that's another fascinating story, another one I'd never heard of, although I don't know why I haven't. But um, it, was, it was pretty amazing to me to think that this country, Norway, that I thought was so environmentally progressive is actually doing some really bad stuff to their reindeer herds. And so maybe you could tell that story. Yeah, so I went to Norway, uh, to the city of Trondheim, which is one third of the way up. Um, it felt pretty far north. And then to realize just how much further this country goes was pretty, you know, pretty Im impressive to think about the scale of things. So I was at a conference for um, on indigenous knowledge, and I was speaking about the global ecology of grazing. And what I learned is at that point, the country was very interested. I mean, you know, like it was like a, a whole big controversy about a case that a young reindeer herder was being forced, all the, all the reindeer, young reindeer herders were being forced to call their herds so that because the government claimed that there were too many reindeer and that this was harming the fragile tundra ecosystem so this young reindeer herder only 23 at the time said 
no, I'm not going to do this. For me to call my herd to this point, that would mean that I, my herding would no longer be viable. And it's not just me, it's my generation. So this mandate means that our people, the Sami people, can no longer continue our practices. So he won a couple of cases and then later at the end of the year, he, he lost the case, the government prevailed. And you know it's very sad, the, the reindeer themselves, his reindeer are still surviving, but he no longer is hurting them. He um, divvied them up among family members so that you know, they're still being herded, but, you know, but unfortunately he, yeah, I mean, what he feared would, would happen, happened. But I explored this further and found that what the government said is not true. Right. That actually, the reindeer are helping to maintain this ecosystem. And it's really interesting how, how this works. So you've got reindeer in the far north, and in the summer, they are browsing. They are nibbling at shrubs and small trees that have been growing. They've been growing more so because, as we know, the polar regions are warming faster than other places on the planet. So by nibbling on the leaves, the reindeer are, made, are kind of trimming them and keeping them under control. And that's important because the darker leaves have a lower albedo rather than reflecting heat. They are absorbing heat and that becomes a kind of self-perpetuating cycle of warming. So that's one way that the reindeer are significant and research has borne this out. The other is during the winter time, the vast herds of reindeers moving across the snow, what they are doing is their trampling is pressing down the snowpack. Now that sounds like a negative thing that, you know, that there's this beautiful fresh snow and they're trampling on it, but actually the snow was acting as an insulator protecting the soil from the bitter cold. But so their pressing down on it actually maintains the snowpack. It keeps the permafrost frosty in essence. Right. So yeah, and research also found that land that I think there were other animals that were used in this particular research, but snow, snowy environments that were grazed were colder than the environments that were not grazed. Right, which we want to maintain that kind of natural climate balance. And it's, it's so cool. It seems like when animals are raised on the land in numbers that are sustainable, there's a positive interaction between all these various environmental variables, like not just the plants, but also things like the climate. And as we talked about before with the trees, the rainfall, there's so many interacting factors in natural food webs that will be self-sustaining. And it's just, you have so many cool stories of how those regenerative practices can be applied in different areas. Yeah, yeah. So it's important to understand that our landscapes evolved and really co-evolved with animals. And often even animals that we think of as pest animals 
can have a beneficial impact on the environment. And this is what I've learned from a, an Australian farmer who, whereas he lives in, I mean, he manages a tract of land the size of the five boroughs of New York City, this huge tract of land. And one of his biggest challenges is fire, of course, right, in Australia. Right. And so there's a huge number of wild donkeys in Western Australia, in the province of Western Australia. And the government considers them pests and are trying to eradicate them in actually some really cruel ways, knowing that donkeys are very intelligent and social. So, but what Chris Hengler understands is that the wild donkeys are actually filling an ecological niche because they are browsing and therefore they are managing the vegetation that when the dry season comes in would co turn to fire tinder. So he considers them fire workers. Yeah, we need some of those in the West to manage some of the tinder that's in abundant supply feeding the forest fires that have been burning for the last month or so here. Certainly. Yeah, because what we what's useful for us to understand is that plant matter needs to break down. You know, there's the life cycle of, of birth, growth, death, and decay. And the the vegetation at, when it goes dormant or you know dies off can be processed biologically through animals eating the vegetation or by fungi breaking down that material or chemically by fire. So, you know, in terms of the health of our ecosystems, I mean, I know that fire has a place, but you know, it's gotten out of balance that it would be very helpful to be able to break down that vegetation biologically and animals can play a hugely important role. Right, and that's a good summation of what you've covered in your book that there's these natural cycles and we humans can interfere with them or we can help them along and and so just to summarize for our listeners you've given so many wonderful stories of how this occurs and we didn't even get to touch on some of the amazing people that you met in your travels so i will link to your book and um, i wish you good luck with this book and i'm gonna go back and read some of your previous work and you'll probably be writing more. So thank you for joining us today, Judith. Well, thank you. That was Judith Schwartz telling us a few of the heartwarming stories of people working toward environmental restoration from her book, The Reindeer Chronicles. Many of the problems she described seemed insoluble, but were overcome by committed individuals working together with local communities. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. I'm the executive producer for the rest of the year, and I produce this week's show. Joel Parker contributed a headline. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Ludwig van Beethoven, born 250 years ago this year. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes. 
extended interviews, more information on the author and book featured in this show, and you can also subscribe to our podcast through iTunes or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett.